Do you tend to feel that if somebody is unhappy with you, it must be your fault? You must have done something wrong. Just kind of your automatic reflex is, uh-oh. <laughs> or to think about it another way, do you think, do you subscribe to the idea that if we, if we handled each person, each situation with skill, with wisdom, with tact, then everybody would always be good with us? Thanks, Larry. I appreciate that. <laughs> I don't know if you're emotionally kind of built that way, just kind of automatically kind of go on the defensive if somebody's upset with you, thinking, I must have done something wrong. It must be my fault. But I've been intrigued with this idea for a long time. The idea that somehow if we were to handle everybody in every situation just the way it ought to be handled, then everybody would always be good with us. I've been intrigued with that for a long time, mainly because of Jesus. By definition, Jesus never did anything wrong. Mark, you with me? By definition, he never did anything wrong. And how did that work out for him? So then, we really ought to put it the other way around. If everybody's always good with us, maybe we're doing something wrong. Just think about raising your children, if you've got kids, right? Are your kids always happy with you? <laughs> and if you're doing what you need to be doing, are they always happy? In John chapter 5, Jesus does an amazingly incredible thing. He discovers a man beside one of the pools in Jerusalem. We'll talk about that in just a minute. He discovers a man there who has been unable to walk for 38 years. And he gives him back the ability to walk. And what is the reaction? The reaction is people want to kill him. I mean, the same thing happened when he raised a man from the dead. That, to me, is always the most astonishing one of all. He raises a man from, a, from the dead. That ought to stop you in your tracks, let alone give you a cause to re react to him in some way. And yet, people want to kill him. We're in John chapter 5, so let's go there now. This is the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. Incredible miracle that Jesus does here. Verse 1, John chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. We don't know exactly what feast this was. There's different ways of trying to calculate and figure out from the other parts of the Gospel of John. But in the end, we just really don't know which one it was. And John really isn't concerned to identify which feast it is because that's not the point. His point is to tell us that Jesus, who has been in the north in Galilee, has now gone back to Jerusalem. That's his point. You know, he wants us to understand what he's about to tell us, this account of this healing. And he wants us to understand, well, wait a minute. Last thing you said, he was up there. Well, how's he get down here? Actually, you'll notice it says Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, related to Galilee, is in the south. You think about going from Seattle to Los Angeles, you always think of going down to Los Angeles. I would naturally think he's going down to Jerusalem, but the scripture says he went up to Jerusalem, and that reflects the mindset of the Jewish people. Not only is Jerusalem on a mountain, so that every way you approach it, you are actually going up, but it is the center point of worship. It is where the temple, where the house of God is. You're always going up to meet with God. And so Jesus has gone south, but he's gone up. Verse 2 says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in the Aramaic called Bethesda, which had five roofed colonnades. Now this pool has been extensively excavated, and I thought I'd share a few pictures with you this morning. The first picture you see there is just a general picture of the area that's been excavated. You're going to notice in the second picture, kind of looking down a little bit into a piece of what would have been the original pool, because the original pools were quite large. You'll see in, in a picture in just a moment. But notice, you're thinking, wow, that's deep. The surface of the old city of Jerusalem right now is about 30 feet higher than it was in the day of Jesus. Just the accumulated debris, rebuilding of the city several times. And so sometimes you're thinking, how in the world would they have built that thing so deep? Actually, the ground level has risen so high. In the next picture, you're going to be looking at a model of the city of Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. 
And in this particular model, the pool of Siloam is over here. Can you all see that through me? This is the temple. The temple mount, Herod built that. He added on to the temple mount. This is a model that you see in the city of Jerusalem. It's about an acre large. A model of the city at about the time of Jesus. The next picture will show you a little closer view of the, the pools of Siloam. This is where this healing took place. It's kind of in the northeast, toward the northeast corner of the old city of Jerusalem at the time. And then the final picture is just an artist's rendition of Jesus meeting this man. And this would be Jesus here. And then the account goes on beginning in verse 3. So Jesus goes to the pool of Siloam and he encounters this man. In these, that is in these various porticos or colonnades, there lay a multitude of invalids. This word invalid just simply means weak or sick. It's a broad and general word for people with physical issues. They're blind, they're lame, or they're paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid, who had been weak for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, I don't think he was there at 38 years in that very spot. <laughs> but Jesus has known he's, he's, he's had this problem for a long time. Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going down, another steps down before me. Now, in some of your Bibles, if you have a King James Bible, as I think a few of you may still, you're going to see some verses there. Other Bibles, like, say, the NIV and the ESV, which we are using, or I am using at least, you'll see it's in a footnote, and it's not included in the main text. It goes on to say in the ESV version, verse 3, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed in whatever disease he had." turns out these verses are not in the most ancient manuscripts. And I don't believe that John wrote them myself, and I really don't believe they're an accurate representation of the situation. Now, it would appear as you read on in the, in the account that there was some kind of a, an idea among the Jewish people at this time that when the water was stirred, when the water in these pools moved spontaneously, that it had healing powers, and if you were the first one in, you would be healed don't really know much or anything really about where this tradition came from, but the notion of an angel coming down and stirring the water, I would not take to be seriously personally. That was added later on toward the end of the second century and was just a way of trying to explain what this man is talking about, about wanting to be put into the water when it is stirred up. If, if indeed the water would be stirred at certain times, probably a natural spring action that from time to time caused a bubbling up of the waters. And so Jesus sees this man there, verse 7, and he explains to Jesus, I, I have no way to get into the water. Before I can get into the water, somebody else beats me to it. Look at verse 8, and Jesus said to him, in this particular case, in many, as in many of the miracles of Jesus, it's just a word. He doesn't do anything. With one blind man, he puts mud on his eyes and instructs him to go wash. Here, Jesus just speaks. He is the Word of God, and the Word of God created all things, and this Word of God is able to create new legs or to make strong, weak legs. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. It's not called a sign here. John doesn't use that word, but clearly one of the signs that he is recording in this gospel as he says at the, very, toward the, at the end of the, uh, the 20th chapter, in the theme statement of the book, Jesus did many other signs than the ones I've written down, but I've written these for you so that you might believe. Here is one he's written for us that we might believe. Now we come to the action. Now we come to the real excitement of this story, the real controversy, the real cause of animosity to, of the Jews toward Jesus. And as you're reading through the Gospel of John, it's in chapter 5 now we begin to discover that people are not happy with Jesus. And we begin to discover why. And there are going to be two main reasons. You want to understand what got killed Jesus, these are them. What got Jesus, did I say that right? What, <laughs> what got Jesus killed? <laughs> yeah. Well, the first thing that got him in trouble here is that he healed on the Sabbath. Verse 9 says, now the day, that day was the Sabbath. 
Just a quick footnote before we look into this a bit. Sunday is not the Sabbath. Today is not the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Friday night sundown to Saturday night sundown. I've never understood why some Christians insist on calling Sunday the Sabbath. It's not the Sabbath, and it never has been. If the New Testament calls it something other than Sunday, it calls it what? The Lord's Day. What does that mean? It is Jesus' day. It is the day that Jesus, the day of the week that Jesus rose. So don't call Sunday the Sabbath, please. Verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. So Jesus tells the man, he's healed, you take, take, take your mat and go home. Now this mat must have been something that he could either fold or roll up pretty easily and tuck under his arm. Almost like something you might take to the beach with you, just kind of roll it out there, you know, roll it up. So he's got this thing, he's either holding it and he's got it under his arm or whatever and he's, he's walking and it calls them the Jews here. This in John's gospel often, not always, refers to the Jewish leadership. Some party of the Jewish leadership sees him carrying his mat and they rebuke him. Now this is kind of astonishing to me to think you got the Sabbath police on duty here. Man by staircase number four carrying a mat. What the... How bad could it be to carry a mat? Well, the Jewish rabbis had spent decades, really centuries, defining all of what it meant to work or not work. Think of an entire volume of the Encyclopedia Britannica devoted to the Sabbath. That's literal. I'm not making that up. There's an entire what's called a tractate. It's a big volume devoted to the Sabbath and defining exactly what is a permitted and not permitted on the Sabbath. One of my favorites is women were not to look in the mirror on the Sabbath. You're already laughing, so I don't have to explain it, right? <laughs> but what the, what, what, the, what the Sabbath tractate actually says is she might see a gray hair and be tempted to pluck it out. And that would constitute working. We laugh because it is so excessive, but just think, this is, this is a book full of these kinds of regulations. What constitutes work on the Sabbath? And clearly they had ruled out the idea that you could carry a mat from one place to another. Under the rules of the Sabbath, you could carry it inside of your own house, but you couldn't carry it outside of your house to another place. And so this man is violating the Sabbath. Verse 11, but he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And so they ask him, well, who, who told you this? Who did this? And he says, I don't know. Jesus had already slipped away, and he doesn't know who it was. Later on, verse 14, Jesus found him, and he instructs him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Not intending to get into that at great length. It's clear from Scripture, not every bad thing is a punishment or a consequence of sinning, but it is also clear in Scripture that sometimes sinning will cause bad things, and God will sometimes intervene in our lives because of sin. And so Jesus instructs him. He says, hey, you've been healed, grace of God, just watch your life, guard your life, live a godly life. Verse 15 is also intriguing to me. It says the man went away and told the Jews. He, after he meets Jesus, understands who he is, he goes and tells them. Why would he do that? He didn't have to necessarily. Doesn't tell us why he did that. Was he, was he afraid? Was, was there a sense of pressure on him that I better go tell because they, they, they got their eye on me now and I'm in trouble? I want to kind of shift the attention away from myself to Jesus. So I don't know exactly, but he goes and he tells them Verse 16 then brings us to the issue, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Now, what to this point had been popularity, making more disciples and baptizing more disciples than John, crowds excited, many miracles he's going to be doing that will draw thousands of people, feeding of 5,000, healing of the multitudes, but now animosity begins and they begin to persecute him. And they persecute him because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. 
That is one of the main reasons that they killed Jesus. It's really the second of the two. I think you probably, if you know the story of Jesus well, you can guess at the first one, but we'll come to it shortly. I want you to notice, last week when we were looking at the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, we saw then that Jesus was completely free to step across cultural, social, religious boundaries, barriers. In other words, he wasn't hung up on all the ways that, all the rules and all the taboos that said, in that case, number one, you as a man should not be talking to her as a woman. That was number one. But number two, you as a Jew should have nothing to do with her as a, as a Samaritan. She's unclean. And if, if Jesus, if she had drawn from the well and Jesus had drunk from her container, in the eyes of Jewish law, he would have been made unclean. Jesus was not hung up on those taboos, and we're learning, and we're going to see here now, that Jesus also did not. I want you to mark this down, because this is also something crucial for us in our lives to think through, think it through carefully, think it through with wisdom, but it's something we really need to think through in our own lives. Jesus did not hesitate to violate man-made laws that were added on to Scripture. He, in other words, I should say it the other way around. Jesus did not feel bound by man-made rules that were added on to Scripture. The authority he submitted to was the authority of his Father. He says that over and over again in this gospel. I do what I've been instructed to do. I do what the Father who sent me to do has commanded me to do. I say what he's told me to say. I'm under his authority, but he's also under the authority of the scriptures. Remember what he said about the law of Moses? Jesus' problem here, Jesus' issue here is not with the fourth commandment, that you shall keep the Sabbath, you shall observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. That is not his problem. That is not his issue. His issue is with all this big tractate that's been developed, this encyclopedia of rules that's been added on to it. Remember what Jesus said about the law of Moses? He said, I did not come to do what? To abolish it. Don't think that. And it's very easy to do that sometimes. You think, oh, in your opposition to legalism, even today among us, in your opposition to legalism, you just want to be worldly. You just want to be able to do what you please. You just don't want to have to obey God. Those who want to keep the rules start judging those who don't feel bound to keep the man-made rules as though they just want to be liberal. They just want to be loose. That wasn't Jesus' attitude at all. And in one point, he makes that absolutely clear. Do not think that that's what I'm about. That's not my point. My point is to fulfill it, not to abolish it. Jesus was not at all bound by human traditions. That was his real problem. Look on the screen at Matthew 15. Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? See, they, they even know what they are. They're the traditions of the elders. They viewed them as equal with the scriptures, as equal with the law of God. They called them the oral law. In rabbinic tradition, these laws were given to Moses orally. Moses wrote some of them down. They're in the Bible. The other ones were orally given, and they've been passed down orally. But they have equal authority. But notice how Jesus responds to this. Verse 3, he answered them. By the way, the, the washing of hands here is not sanitation or sanitary practice before you have a meal. It's a ritual. It's a religious ritual of purification. And they were eating. They hadn't gone through the proper Jewish ritual of purification before they were eating. And, the, and, and again, the law, you know, the, the police, the, the tradition police, the taboo police, the rules police were on duty and they saw that they weren't keeping the rules, and they come right along, and they get on Jesus about this. Hey, why don't your disciples do what they ought to be doing? Why don't they respect and honor and keep the traditions of the elders? Jesus' answer, verse 3, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Now, we could unpack that. We won't take the time today. I've left out some verses, but notice, dropping down to verse 7, you hypocrites, 
Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And that is, that is the issue for Jesus here. And that really ought to be the issue for us as well. If something is not taught in the word of God, we should not be trying to enforce it as a law or a rule that everyone must be obeying. And we all, we all, we, we do this. Let's be honest with ourselves. We do this. We inherit a certain sense of what is right and appropriate for godly people. We, we get that not just from reading the Bible. We also get it from our churches and from our backgrounds and from our traditions. It's true. It's just as true for me as it is for anyone else. And the question becomes then, are we finding these things in the Word of God? We go back to check and say, does the Word of God really say this? And if it does not, then we should not be elevating the commandments of men to the level of the Word of God and treating it as though it has that authority. Now, let's think through how Jesus could have responded to this. This in, in John chapter 5. They're upset with Jesus and they're starting to per persecute Jesus because he is healing on the Sabbath. He is not keeping the Sabbath according to the traditions of the elders. What he could have done, he could have come back at them in all kinds of different ways. In fact, as you study the four Gospels, he responds to this charge because this is one of the main charges against Jesus again and again and again is you violate the Sabbath. And he responds to that in very many different ways, a lot of different ways. He could have responded here by doing, saying something similar to what we just read in Matthew 15. He does say in Matthew 23, verse 4, he's denouncing the Pharisees and the scribes. This is that passage where it says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And he just litany, woe to you, this, woe to you, that. He did say there in Matthew 23, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders. He could have taken them on on that level to say, you and your rules, do you really think it matters that this man is carrying this mat to his home after he's been healed? You really think that's a violation of God's intention when he said, keep the Sabbath holy? He could have done that. In his own case, when he was being attacked in Luke chapter 13, he healed a woman who had been doubled over by a demon for 18 years. That's just remarkable to think about, isn't it? Now, one of the benefits of studying and preparing to preach and teach is, is it gives you opportunity to really chew on things and just chewing on that this week, to think this woman could not straighten up and probably in some kind of pain for 18 years, and it was a demon doing that to her. That's just fascinating to think about. Well, Jesus is in the synagogue, and he's actually teaching in the synagogue. He sees this woman, he calls her over, and he heals her on the spot. Well, the leader of the synagogue is, in, is enraged. And he actually rebukes. He rebukes Jesus by rebuking the whole group that's there. It's like me taking you all, all of you, and, and spanking you. He basically says, there are six days to be healed. This is the Sabbath. What does Jesus say to him? Verse 15 of Luke chapter 13, you hypocrites, does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox and his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? You have more concern and compassion for your animals than you do for people. You, you understand that it's perfectly legitimate because the animal needs it. This is not breaking God's command. You're simply caring properly for your animal as God would want you to, and you know that. And so how is it that you think there's some awful desecration of God and his holiness and his holy day by healing this woman? So Jesus could have argued it this way here in John chapter 5. He could have responded in any number of ways. But the way he responds is absolutely intriguing and fascinating. Look what he says, verse 17. 
Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. At first, I don't think those words are even going to cause a blip on the screen. They, they, they haven't caused, you know, most of the time in my life, they don't cause a blip on the screen. You know, I, okay, my father is working until now, and I am working. But notice how they react to this. It moves from persecuting to what? Look at the text. What does it say? It moves from persecuting to all the more wanting to kill. Jesus' words have sent them through the roof. And it's a double whammy. They're already upset with him for breaking the Sabbath, but now he is making this outrageous claim. My father is working until now, and so am I. Let's pause here for a minute, and let's think about these people. They're persecuting Jesus, and they are now thinking that he needs to die. These people are not some overly ramped up violent thugs. Now, this isn't some movie <laughs> where you just, you know, you insulted me, I'm ready to take you out. What's going on here? At least some of these people are genuinely devout, godly people. What would move them to want to kill somebody for violating the Sabbath? Well, Jesus is actually doing two things here that the Old Testament law very clearly indicates make someone worthy of death. In fact, commands that they are to be put to death. Exodus chapter 31, verse 12 the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, look at these next two words, above all. Helps us to get how serious this violation of the Sabbath thing was. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. That is, I consecrate you unto myself. You belong to me. I have given you the means of, of um, purification so that you can belong to me. The honoring of the Sabbath is the key sign that you are my people. You're set apart to live on this earth devoted to me. You shall keep the Sabbath, Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. That's how serious God is about this. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. That's the Old Testament law. That's what's going on with these people and why they are having difficulty with Jesus. Now, I didn't put it in my notes today because it didn't occur to me then, but it's occurring to me just now that you might be wondering, is that still applying to us? And the answer to that is no. I'll just direct you to Colossians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 14, where it is made very clear that we are no longer under the Sabbath law. Christians differ on the way that they believe, what they believe about Sunday and how Sunday ought to be treated. I was raised that we didn't do any kind of extra working on Sunday. In other words, we didn't mow the lawn on Sunday. We didn't wash the car. We didn't vacuum the, the house, you know, those kinds of things. We did, we did those kinds of things on Saturday or during the week. And it's just been the habit of my life, so I never really changed it, okay? It's not because I feel like God's going to strike me in some way if I go out and mow the grass on Sunday. It's just this is the way I grew up, it was the way I was raised, and it's just an orientation of life. On Sunday, I don't cut the grass. It's good with me. I don't want to cut it anyway. So. <laughs> and I, don't let, I didn't let Mark and Scotty cut it either. <laughs> we didn't do those kinds of things in our home. Now, is, am I saying to you now, you should be living like that? This is something for you to make up in your own mind. Romans 14 is absolutely clear about this. It's clear about two things. 
It says there, like I said, I didn't pre-prepare this. I don't have it on the screen for you. It says very clearly, some people set one day above the rest. Others treat all seven equally. And you know what it says next? Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. You can't say that if it's a law of God. Now, think about it this way. If you think, here's the Sabbath and here's the other six, okay? What does it mean to treat all seven alike? Does it mean to do this? It does not mean to do this. It means to do this. It means you live for God, all seven, every day, equally. And you treat them all equally. The second thing it says in Romans 14, and this is very germane to what we're seeing about Jesus here and what we need to be learning in our own lives, it very clearly says don't judge each other about these things. That's, you leave that to Jesus. He's the master. Let your brother or sister answer to him. It's not your job to go around policing them on all these things. These are all the secondary debatable issues that Christians have are being addressed there in Romans 14. And he says, on these kind of questionable things, it's not your place to be judging somebody. If you have a conviction about something, great. Honor it, keep it but don't judge somebody else who doesn't share that conviction. We're not talking about a clear statement of the Word of God that says this is what you are to do or not do. We're talking about these debatable issues between Christians where the Word of God does not command. Anyway, to go back, we've read a pretty heavy and serious text about the Sabbath and that God was very serious about it and God was prescribing the death penalty for those who violated the Sabbath. I just want to make sure that you understand that law is not our law today. Our law is the law of Christ, not the law of Moses. And we've been set free from that particular law. So Jesus is violating the Sabbath. Something else Jesus is going to do, and that's what we're going to focus on next. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. And this is reason number two that Jesus was crucified. You do not crucify a hippie for saying peace, love, and happiness. Jesus wasn't just a nice guy in a robe handing out flowers. Jesus was taking on the very heart and the very core of their faith. And the thing that really got him killed was blasphemy, but it was also quite serious that he was violating the Sabbath. For those two things, they persecute and then all the more, it says here in John chapter 5, wanted to put him to death. Now, what is Jesus saying here? When Jesus says, my father is working until now and I am working, this was also fascinating to really get some time to chew on this this week. Think this through. What exactly is he saying? Well, the next verse goes on to indicate that they react to him calling God his father. My father is working until now, and I am working. This is clearly, clearly a claim to something different than what you and I mean when we call God our father. We bow our heads and we say, Heavenly Father, and we start praying. Nobody reacts. Nobody's tried to stone me for saying, Heavenly Father. <laughs> Jesus is claiming, number one, a unique relationship with God. And they heard it, and they heard it loud and clear. He is claiming that God is his Father in a way that God is not our Father. Let me say that again. He is claiming that God is his Father in a way that God is not your Father and my Father. God is our Father but not like this. Only one person in this relationship. That's what the word only means. Remember John 3.16 used to say his only begotten son. It says his only son, his unique son, his one of a kind son. There's only one son in this category. That's what he's talking about here. Jesus never referred to God as our Father, including his disciples, with himself. He never said that anywhere. Well, you say, well, wait, wait, the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. 
He was talking to them. You can say our father. But he never said our father, yours and mine. He only said, he referred to him as the father or my father when he was talking about his relationship uniquely with God. See, the issue here is not that he's being over-familiar with God. That's not what they're reacting to. He almost certainly said, my Abba. And they might not have liked that. That might have seemed too familiar to them, but that's not the issue here. The issue is that he's claiming some kind of a relationship with God that nobody else has. The second claim that is woven into these words, and this is what I find most fascinating of all, he's claiming to be on a different level than the rest of us. He's claiming to operate on a level that you and I are not allowed to operate on. My father is working, and I am working. God works on the Sabbath. I work on the Sabbath. You don't get to work on the Sabbath. You can't work on the Sabbath. You are under the Sabbath law. I'm not under the Sabbath law. And that must have set, shot them straight through the roof. Who in the world do you think you are? Part of the backdrop to this exchange between Jesus and these Jewish leaders was this theological issue. Does God keep the Sabbath? Now, what does Genesis say? Six days he creates, and then what did he do on the seventh day? He rested. And it would appear then that God rests on the Sabbath. God keeps the Sabbath. What's the problem? If God rests on the Sabbath, what happens? The universe collapses. Who's upholding the universe? Who's providentially guiding and directing the events and the activities and the, and the purposes of the world, the universe that we live in? And so the discussion shifts from does God keep the Sabbath to how can God work and not violate the Sabbath? Because God has to be working, always. One way that the Jewish uh, rabbis went at this question was to look at all of this big encyclopedia of rules for what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath and say, well, look, here's a rule. We talked about this a few minutes ago. You can carry your mat inside your house. You just can't carry it outside your house to another place. Well, the whole universe is God's house, so he never carries anything out of his own house. I, I would call that sophistry. The whole thing's sophistry, Right? Jesus gave us a much simpler answer to the question. What did he say about the Sabbath? Who was the Sabbath made for? The Sabbath was made for man, for humanity, for us. And why was it made for you and me? It was made for our benefit. It was made because we were built in such a way, being physical beings, that we need one day of the week to turn the jets down. And that is why a lot of people have, have health issues, physical issues, emotional issues, because they never turn the jets down, and we're not built for that. You stress your body, and you stress your mind, and your soul, and your heart, always, continually, week after week, month after month, year after year, it's going to start breaking down. It's not designed for that sort of thing. If you want to think about how to honor the principle of the Sabbath in our lives, we're not under a Sabbath commandment according to the New Testament. There's not a law that we legalistically have to worry about obeying. But if you want to think about the Sabbath principle, it was made for us and for our good. And so you ought to slow down once a week. You ought to have a day in which you genuinely put it aside Carl's chuckling at me right now. He says, yeah, if they'd let me, I'd do it. <laughs> Some of you I know in your workplaces. That's a tough deal, right? It's a very tough thing to always be able to do that. But if you're thinking about what would the Sabbath mean in the Christian life, the Sabbath would mean in God's design, one day a week, as, as, as we are able, we should slow down and take some rest. Jesus gave us a much simpler answer to this question does God keep the Sabbath or does, how can God work on the Sabbath without violating the Sabbath? He doesn't need a Sabbath. 
The Sabbath is not for him. It is for us because we need rest. He does not need rest. He does not get tired. He does not grow weary. That's one of the great texts of Isaiah, right? God is always reigning. He is always caring. He is always loving. He is always working his purposes in this creation. And he never breaks for any day. Let me just add, if I may, before we go back to the text, Jesus did not break any commandment here. He did not break a commandment by healing this man. He did not break a commandment or encourage someone else to break a commandment by having this man carry his mat home. He kept the law of God. He lived a life completely in obedience to God. He never sinned. But in their minds, he was breaking the law because they had added so much to it. Now let's go back to what Jesus said here. My father is working until now, and I am working. It's that second part of this claim, especially, that stands out to me. There's two sides to this. My father, I stand in a unique relationship with the creator of the universe. Remember, this is a man saying these words to them. Sometimes we have to try to set our theology aside for the moment and just realize the human situation. But secondly, he's saying, I'm on a different level than you are. Did these leaders hear an absolute claim to deity? I'm not sure at this point that they did. They might have. But I'm not sure they're reacting to him saying, I'm God. For sure what they're reacting to is, I can operate on the same level as God. Now, we know the backstory because we know who's talking. We know who he is. But this is an audacious claim any way you slice it. God is operating at this level. God is working on the Sabbath. So am I. God is caring for his creation. I caring for this man and restoring his ability to walk. And that sets them off. And he says to them, or they, they react and say, you making yourself equal with God. Equal, if not in nature, at least equal in status. Whatever they may have heard in this claim, we know that Jesus is going to gradually, through the course of his ministry, be making it clearer and clearer and clearer who he is. On the screen, John chapter 8, the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. You know the full story there? Number one, it's a claim to exist, to have existed. First of all, always, but a claim to, to have existed at the time of Abraham. But it is also a use of the divine name from the, from the account of the burning bush in Exodus where Moses met God there. And he called himself, I am. Well, you talk about setting their hair on fire and no doubt about it what he's talking about here. That's something that we'll see as we study through the Gospel of John. There's a series of these I am statements that Jesus makes in this Gospel. That is an incredible, incredible statement of who he is. One last passage I want us to look at together. I didn't, I'm not putting it on the screen because it's too long. If you'll turn to John chapter 10, just a few chapters over from 5 to 10, verse 22. 10, 22. Verse 22 says, At that time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. 
And Jesus answered them, I have, for Pete's sake. Have you been listening? (laughs) I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Just make a mental note there. We've touched on it before. We're going to see it more again next week. The works that I do. Jesus appeals again and again in this gospel to the works that he did as the leading indicator of who he is. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. I heal this man who's been unable to walk for 38 years. That's an indicator of who I am. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. What's in my hand is in his hand. What's in his hand is in my hand. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. He's blaspheming in their minds. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. By this point, for sure, there is no more doubt exactly what he's saying. They may not have here in John 5, back there in John 5, when he said, my father is working until now and I am working. They may have wondered where he was going with that. They may may have thought he was making a rather uh, bold claim to be God. But even if they didn't, he was just putting himself on par with God, saying, I operate on the same level as God. I, I, I follow the same rules as God. If that's all they were hearing back then, by this point in chapter 10, all doubt is removed about what he is saying. God and I are one. The Father and I are one. And they hear him exactly, and they know exactly what he means. This is the Jesus of history. This is the real Jesus. If you're familiar with the academic study of the Bible in the New Testament, you will have heard of the discussion of the Christ of faith versus the Jesus of history. What that means in simple terms is in the minds of many scholars, what we're reading here is the faith of the early Christians, what they came to believe about Jesus. These four books write what the early Christians came to believe about Jesus. They call that, the scholars call that the Christ of faith. They have a lot of doubt, a lot of skepticism about whether Jesus did or said these things. The Jesus of history in this particular framework means the man who actually lived a couple thousand years ago behind the one who became this figure written about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the one that Christians came to believe certain things about and turned him into the Christ of faith. He's the real Jesus of history. He was a normal man. He was an ordinary man, of a genius, great man, a founder of a great religion, a teacher of a great ethic, but a man. What I'm saying to you today is this one who says, my father is working until now, and I am working. This one who says, before Abraham was, I am. This one who says, this one who says, as he, the Father and I are one. This one is the Jesus of history. This is the man who lived some 2,000 years ago. And the question that confronts us as we read this is, have you come to terms with who he is. That's really what this book is all about, the Gospel of John. These things I have written so that you might believe and that believing you might have life. Some very dear friends of Roberta's and mine and others of you as well 
told us a story a few years ago that it was this very thing that awakened them and brought them to faith. Mike and Anna Withy. They said, Mike was driving around in his truck, working in a, in a truck driving position, and he's hearing this guy on the radio say, Jesus is God. And gets all excited and goes home and tells Anna, did you know Jesus is God? And Anna says, no, he's not. But it was the first time that they had really been hit by this reality. Jesus is God. And if that is true, if that is true, then we need to take him seriously. Have you come to terms with who he really is? That's the question this text confronts us all with today. You're going to react in one of three ways. You're going to react, most of us today wouldn't, but you could react like they reacted, the Jewish people, leadership. You could be inflamed and enraged. Probably most of us today would just react with apathy, whatever. Or you could suddenly see and realize and understand. Wow. Jesus is so much more than I ever thought he was before. And then you realize who he is. What what are you going to do? You're going to bow the knee. You can confess, Jesus is Lord. That is what we desire for everyone among us. All of you that belong to Crossway or you attend Crossway, you come and fellowship with us together. We want everyone to be clear that this Christianity thing isn't just an ethic. It isn't just a religion. It isn't just a comfort it most certainly isn't just a therapy. It is the living God dwelling among us. And we want you to know him. We want you to know who he is so that you can give yourself to him and have the life that he's come to give you.